when a president of the United States in the Oval Office says something like I hope or I suggest or, or would you, do you take that as a, as, a, as a directive? Yes, it rings in my ear as kind of, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? It and what is that? Uh, it's something that my ancestor, Henry II, once said when he was having trouble with Thomas a Becket. He was sitting at a table like this with two drunken knights, and he yelled out, Who will rid me of this turbulent priest? Hello folks, and welcome back to Where Read This. My name's Ash, and today I am pierced with a sudden painful joy to be talking about Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot. First performed in 1935, this play tells the story of the martyrdom of Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was brutally killed in the year 1170. T.S. Eliot is most famous, perhaps, for his poetry, but as we'll see, he dedicated a great deal of his writing career to theatre, and Murder in the Cathedral was his first full-length play. Initially performed at the Canterbury Festival, it became a surprise hit, hailed as a kind of Hamlet of our times. It went on to have a lengthy run on the West End, and was performed at the Edinburgh Festival, later being made into a film in 1951. To talk about Murder in the Cathedral, I am delighted to be joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Jamie Steyer, President of the International T.S. Eliot Society. The Society has been running since 1980 and holds an annual international meeting where scholars and enthusiasts alike discuss T.S. Eliot. It features a memorial lecture given by a scholar or a poet, and past lecturers have included Cray Grain, Christopher Ricks, Geoffrey Hill and Grace Shulman. It also produces a thrice-annual magazine called Time Present, and having read the latest issue, I strongly recommend it to anyone interested in T.S. Eliot. Especially right now, as the recent publication of Eliot's letters to Emily Hale contain numerous revelations about the poet and Hale's influence on his work, the ramifications of which are discussed wonderfully by the contributors to Time Present. To find out more about the magazine and the work of the International Society, tune back in tomorrow when Jamie and I will be talking more about it. In the meantime, you can check the links below in the episode description. Before we get started today, just a little bit of medieval background, since the history Eliot drew from dovetails quite nicely with some of our recent material elsewhere on the podcast. Lately, we've been talking about Shakespeare's English history plays, which concentrate on a series of kings who ruled between 1377 and 1485. These are the last kings in the house of Plantagenet, a house which destroyed itself in the internecine Wars of the Roses. But until then, the Plantagenets were having a good run, having ruled over England for 300 years. The first king of the House of Plantagenet was Henry II, who reigned from 1154 to 1189. Attributed to Henry is the famous quote, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Which, as the legend goes, was overheard by four loyal knights who dutifully took it upon themselves to hack the priest to bits. That priest was in fact the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. Eliot based his play on the account given of Beckett's assassination and the events directly after it by an eyewitness, Edward Grimm, who was himself wounded in the attack. Beckett was born in Cheapside, London, in around 1119. At the age of 37, he was appointed Chancellor of the Realm by Henry II and was later advanced to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Before their fatal rift, the Archbishop and the King were close friends, some even saying that Henry was the only person Beckett is known to have loved. However, their relationship soured when the newly appointed archbishop sought to extend the power of the church over the secular judiciary. Henry wanted to restrict papal influence and to precisely delineate the relations between church and state, which led to his presenting the 16 Articles of Legislature known as the Constitutions at Clarendon in 1164. 
Henry's bishops accepted this restriction of their powers, but Becket rejected it. His refusal of the king's wishes led to him being put on trial, after which he fled to Europe. After a few years pursued in exile, a chilly reconciliation was reached and Becket was allowed to come home. He landed on England on December 1st, 1170. However, he stuck to his turbulent ways, and before the year was out, he was dead. What was it about Becket that, that drew Eliot? Well, if you think about who Becket was, he was a very powerful chancellor mm. who, for reasons which his peers could not understand, gave up the power that he had and claimed God alone as the most important thing in his life. And that, in effect, is what Eliot did. He, By that point, he wasn't a Nobel laureate. He, he didn't win the Nobel Prize until 1948. But in 1935, he was... He was pretty much on top of the literary pile. Um, he ran a journal, The Criterion, which, even though it had a small subscription base, was respected by many literary lights in London and in England. So he was, he was the arbiter of English letters. Mm. And for someone like him to claim, no, it's God alone that matters, was something that rubbed uh, the wrong way to many people. I think, was it after The Rock that Virginia Woolf said uh, um, Eliot was in danger of turning into a priest? Um, was, was his, not only his conversion, but his writing more explicitly religious uh, material a surprise to his, his peers? Uh, yeah, it was, um, especially mm. to the Bloomsbury group. Eliot was associated with that, with that circle of people. Mm. Um, they were wild bohemians, and mm. so they understandably felt very betrayed by the fact that he's going over to, to throne and altar. Um, it was something that they didn't much understand. And Virginia Woolf, of course, is so quotable on those. <laughs> she referred to uh, murder in the cathedral as his pale New England morality murder. <laughs> um, so yeah, so his his writing, both his criticism, uh, which he wrote explicitly about Christian sociology, his uh, poetry like Ash Wednesday and Four Quartets, and his plays, even when they aren't explicitly talking about God, they are talking about the spiritual life. So yeah, Virginia, he moved further and further away from Wolfe's own concerns. Eliot said, a poet would like to be something of a popular entertainer and be able to think his own thoughts behind a tragic or comic mask. He would like to convey the pleasures of poetry, not only to a larger audience, but to larger groups of people collectively. And the theatre is the best place in which to do it. These sentiments might surprise a first-time reader of Ash Wednesday or The Wasteland, and they certainly seem to surprise Eliot's clique. After his fellow modernist poet Ezra Pound read a first draft of The Wasteland, he wrote to Eliot, Complimenti, you bitch. I am racked by the seven jealousies. It was a different story years later, when upon hearing a performance of Murder in the Cathedral, Pound winced at them Corkney voices. In our episodes on Shakespeare's history plays, we've been talking about a theatrical culture in which verse and prose were not in competition. Both were spoken on stage, there were plays entirely in verse, entirely in prose, and plenty that were a mixture of the two. But by the 1930s, verse and prose had gone through a rift of their own. Prose comedies and melodramas had continued to be popular, while verse had doubled down on its literiness, a shift encouraged by the likes of John Dryden. When Eliot wrote Murder in the Cathedral, poetic drama was declining in popularity, due in part to the rise of psychological realism in the theatre. This had been popularised by the plays of Ibsen, Chekhov, and also by theatre practitioner Stanislavski, with his famous system, which paved the way to method acting, which paved the way to methods of avoiding actors. 
Verse Theatre now had to make a case for itself if it was going to compete. For too long, it had turned inward and stagnated. During the 19th century, poets like Thomas Hardy, Algernon Charles Swinburne and John Keats all wrote verse plays that, following Dryden, were literary but undramatic. Many were written without the slightest intention of being staged. These were known as literary closet dramas, meant to be read aloud to a few sympathetic and resilient friends. Eliot felt it imperative to distance modern poetic drama from these indoorsy soirees. Though a great admirer of Elizabethan and Jacobean verse, he recognised that the 19th century poets had by imitation rendered it virtually unusable. Eliot said of the style that after extensive use for non-dramatic poetry, it had lost the flexibility which blank verse must have if it is to give the effect of conversation. One of the offenders here was Alfred Lord Tennyson, who had coincidentally written his own play on the same subject matter as Murder in the Cathedral. Called simply Beckett, Tennyson's play in the words of Neville Coghill follows a bad tradition in trying to imitate Shakespeare, but is, in many ways, the most successful piece of sham Shakespeare ever written. However, coolly precise imitation leads to the watering down of fundamental matters. When you write plays to entertain a minority audience who share your expertise and watch merely for your surface variations on a niche theme, you have strayed rather far from the public stage, something unimaginable for a working playwright like Shakespeare. According to Dennis Donoghue, writers like Tennyson had dissipated the Shakespearean tragic form by retaining its mechanical semblance and turning it into a series of interrupted monologues. Now just a quick word to say this is the second bit of Tennyson bashing in as many episodes on the podcast, and I just want to reassure you ardent Tennyson fans that reparations are on the way. Stay strong. But for Eliot, Shakespearean blank verse was out, thanks to these poetic dramas of the previous century, which in the words of J.C. Truin, so echoed with Elizabethan and Jacobean tags and rhythms that they resembled a haunted ruin, haunted by the iambic pentameter. To reach the larger audience he craved, Eliot would have to either create a new kind of dramatic verse or resurrect a forgotten one. Um, and what kind of theatrical culture was he writing into? Was it, was, is it, should we picture uh, T.S. Eliot as playwright on the outskirts of the lunatic fringe or was he looking to write something that would be uh, popular? That's a, that's a great question. And the answer to that is exactly in the middle of those two extremes. So he he believed really strongly that the roots of theater was ritual and rhythm. So that's why in Sweeney Agonistes, he wanted there to be a drum, a beating of a drum along with the beats of the, uh, of the speaking. But the problem with experimental black box theater is that it only appeals to a coterie audience. And Eliot wanted to reach a broad audience. Mm. And sort of by accident, writing for this religious audience. Uh, it was actually not only written for the Canterbury Festival, it was performed in the charter house of the Canterbury uh, Cathedral. So just, you know, a couple of yards away from where Beckett was murdered. Mm. So he has this very pious audience. So he doesn't write down to them. He writes from his own religious conviction. He was a fairly recent convert by that point. And he was writing to people who knew that they would be able to absorb and be interested in the religious message that he was interested in. So he mm. didn't write down to them, and he found that it was uh, it was a smash hit. And as as soon as it closed in Canterbury, it opened just a couple of months later in London, and and was a surprise hit on the 
the Shaftesbury Avenue circuit. That experience of having murder in the cathedral being the sort of the pivot between the experimental stuff of Sweeney Agonistes and The Rock uh, and the more traditional dramas of his later period like The Elder Statesman and The Confidential Clark, those plays play very much to the mid middle class bourgeois audiences, family drama, middle class anxieties, that kind of stuff. It's interesting to witness how Eliot's principles concerning poetic drama changed over the course of his career. Here are two statements of his which are exemplified by Murder in the Cathedral. Verse plays should either take their subject matter from some mythology, or else should be about some remote historical period, far enough away from the present for the characters not to need to be recognisable as human beings, and therefore for them to be licensed to talk in verse. Picturesque period costume renders verse much more acceptable. And in 1936, he stressed the necessity for poetic drama at the present time to emphasise, not to minimise, the fact it is written in verse. Granted, the first quote is already retrospective, but both ideals, that verse plays were rendered more acceptable by historical settings, and that they should emphasise, not conceal their being written in verse, are observed in Murder in the Cathedral, and yet both these ideals Eliot would abandon in the course of his playwriting career. The story of Beckett's martyrdom counts both as historical and somewhat mythological material, Apophrica and rumour surround the murder and its aftermath, from the famous story of the knights overhearing Henry II's turbulent priest comment, to the tales of what happened to the assassins after they murdered the archbishop. One story goes that after fleeing the scene, they settled in one of the knights' castles in Knaresborough, where due to the wretchedness of their deed, not even the dogs could bear to eat with them. Murder in the Cathedral, then, by drawing on historical material and playing off the mythology surrounding it, has, by Eliot's reckoning, earned the licence to speak in verse. His second supposition, that poetic drama should emphasise and not minimise its verse, is also demonstrated. Murder in the Cathedral draws attention to its versification and is, for the most part, deliberately non-naturalistic. The resulting play was a success, but Eliot was conscious that it might be something of a one-off. He acknowledged that he had had the advantage of being a beginner, and the further advantage in writing a bespoke play for the Canterbury Festival, whose attendants, he reasoned, would expect to have to put up with poetry. Finally, Eliot had the advantage of writing a religious play, and as he explained, people who go deliberately to a religious play expect to be patiently bored and to satisfy themselves with the feeling that they have done something meritorious. So while Eliot may have delivered a play that comfortably exceeded expectations, he wasn't convinced he had hit upon a methodology for writing successful modern poetic dramas. And neither was the play's director and Eliot's longtime collaborator, E. Martin Brown who said that cathedral success does not prove that verse drama has regained a place in our theatre. In The Art of T.S. Eliot, Helen Gardner agrees the achievement of murder in the cathedral wasn't quite unmitigated. Mr. Eliot's attempts to render his vision of the boredom, the horror and the glory of life in dramatic terms have given us the finest dramatic verse that has been written in English since the 17th century. The question that is debatable is whether he has yet succeeded in writing a great play. I, w I suppose I want to ask about the kind of uh, the f w what it resembled and what sort of forms he was using because I've read it's got similarities to, to miracle plays and obviously uses a sermon. Uh, sure, he's calling on the the miracle plays, especially the not so much the structure of the miracle play, but the mm. context of the miracle play in which you have a religious audience that is not like traditional bourgeois audiences simply passively 
passively observing the drama on the stage. They're part of the drama themselves. They're the congregation to this action, like the priest and the congregation. So there's something uh, liturgical about the action of a miracle play that Eliot wanted to recreate. So that's why he created the, the chorus of women. They're connected to the earth. These are women who are, they're uneducated, but they have a kind of a visionary sense that something of great importance is going on. Uh, and they're also women who suffer. They see the world and they understand the suffering of the world. So in some senses, they are closer to Thomas Beckett than even his own advisors and priests are, who they're the ones who try to save him from being killed by the knights when they come in. So, and, and as you also point out, there's the sermon that he gives smack in the middle of the play. There's an act one and an act, or a part one and a part two, and then the sermon, the Christmas Day sermon that he gives, which allows him to meditate not only on Christ's birth, his incarnation coming into the world, but by referring to the next day, December 26th, which is St. Stephen's Day, we, he refers to the, mar the first martyr of the church. So death and birth and rebirth are all mixed up together, a favorite theme of Eliot's. Uh, and then I think just the structure of the acts themselves are there, it's a mirror structure there. The interest in part one is in the, the audience watching Thomas wrestle with the four temptations who strike closer and closer to his own fears. Mm. And then the interest in act two is the audience watching the four knights explain and rationalize the murder and implicate the audience in a way that must have surprised them. The, the, one of the, the knights, I think it's maybe the third knight, uh, actively blames the, the present day audience, the 1935 audience, that they're complicit in Thomas's death. He says, what, what King Henry, what would have been if we hadn't stepped in and killed him is that you would have uh, a marriage of church and state, a perfect marriage. And presumably you, and I'm paraphrasing here, presumably you would prefer not to be ruled by a theocracy. You would prefer to be ruled by elected politicians. So if you like the fact that the church has been subordinated to the state, then you are guilty just as we are in killing Thomas Beckett. So that that was Eliot's way of sort of pulling the, congreg the, uh, the congregation slash audience into the action of the drama by making them think about their own culpability in the moral structure of the play. And uh, the actors who normally play the part of the tempters in the beginning are usually cast in the same roles as, in the second part as the knights who kill. Eliot had used a chorus in his earlier pageant play, The Rock. Neville Coghill, assessing the success of both plays, says the chorus in The Rock teaches, the chorus in Murder in the Cathedral, learn. This chorus, one of, in Eliot's words, emotionally excited women, initially resist the impending doom of Thomas, but over the course of the play come to realise their spiritual well-being depends on his sacrifice. In medieval morality plays, like Everyman, characters were not always presented as individuals, but composite figures representing archetypes or values. The listed characters in Everyman include fellowship, knowledge, and good deeds. In Murder in the Cathedral, with the exception of Beckett, the characters are somewhat similar. Though the assassins refer to each other by name, they are still listed as first knight, second knight, and so on. As are the tempters and the priests. Then there is a messenger, some attendants, and of course the chorus of Canterbury women, who say, For us, the poor, there is no action, 
but only to wait and to witness. Beckett stands alone, and it is his fate the audience are drawn to. Yet the Archbishop is a static character, the still centre of the wheel. Furthermore, as Helen Gardner points out, the play opens so near its climax that any inner development is impossible. We are warned again and again that we are not watching a sequence of events that has the normal dramatic logic of motive, act, result, but an action which depends on the will of God and not on the wills of men. It goes some way to demonstrating Eliot's religious seriousness that he subordinates dramatic logic to this presentation of the will of God. It is the inescapability of God's will he depicts, not any decision-making or moral conflict of Beckett's. But that's not to say Eliot cared only about proselytizing. On the contrary, he acknowledged that a religious play, to be good, must not be purely religious. If it is, it is simply doing something that the liturgy does better. And this is where the chorus comes in. If murder in the cathedral were purely religious, we might expect to lose the chorus altogether. Instead, we would hear from the only named character, Beckett, as he bears witness to God's will in moving but rather undramatic terms. To accept your fate is subject to the will of God is to accept that you cannot influence it. As Thomas says, rather chillingly, all my life they have been coming, these feet. All my life I have waited. Death will come only when I am worthy, and if I am worthy, there is no danger. He is not in danger, he says, only near death. A human audience with its linear and fleeting existence might be forgiven for finding the attitude of Beckett's somewhat alien in its placidity. Beckett's belief that he has aligned his will with God's places him in an ecstatic eternal present, something the devout in the audience may strive for, but most will only ever glimpse, as Beckett well understands, saying to the chorus, Peace, and be at peace with your thoughts and visions. These things had to come to you, and you accept them. This is your share of the eternal burden, the perpetual glory. This is one moment, but know that another shall pierce you with a sudden painful joy when the figure of God's purpose is made complete. You shall forget these things, toiling in the household. You shall remember them, droning by the fire, when age and forgetfulness, sweeten memory, only like a dream that has often been told and often been changed in the telling. They will seem unreal. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Being already part of the perpetual glory places Beckett on a pedestal, and some have found him a little superior. Helen Gardner says, There is more than a trace in the Archbishop of the classic prig. She marks the taint of professionalism about his sanctity, the note of complacency which is always creeping into his self-conscious presentation of himself. It takes an intellectual effort for lovers of life to admire characters like Thomas Beckett, characters who don't value being alive above all else. As audience members, we tend to prefer characters who selfishly grasp to life, even cornered murderers like Richard III or Macbeth. Their pathetic but irresistible will to survive cannot fail to have us automatically root for them, even if we know we shouldn't. In this, they are far closer to ourselves than the calm, expectant martyr or the reported suicide. These are people who have opted out of our condition, and as such, we can only understand them with intellectual effort. Luckily, in the chorus, we have sisters in arms and companions in time, for the Canterbury women experience the horror, incomprehension, and final acceptance of Beckett's martyrdom, quite as we, the audience, might. Eliot saw the function of the chorus not as a replacement of action, but as mediating between action and audience, saying, it intensifies the action by projecting its emotional consequences, so that we as the audience see it doubly, by seeing its effect on other people. D.E. Jones writes, Eliot has used the chorus to open out the action into its full significance, as nobody else has done since Aeschylus. 
With and through the chorus, we of the audience are invited to participate in the celebration of the act of martyrdom, and to accept the sacrifice of Thomas as made in our behalf. Before we can do this, however, we, like Thomas, must undergo temptation. In our case, the temptation to deny the efficacy of his sacrifice and its relevance to us. The chorus do not influence the plot or sway Thomas in his sacrifice. Rather, they furnish the play's ritual. Neville Coghill points out that the subtitle to Eliot's earlier short play, Sweeney Agonistes, was an Aristophanic melodrama, which, as Coghill says, points not only to its farcical elements that are combined with a kind of gruesomeness or terror, but also to its ritual character. Eliot, he says, was the first to reintroduce this ritual element into the theatre, and it plays a prominent part in The Rock, Murder in the Cathedral, The Family Reunion and The Cocktail Party. This ritual, in Aristophanes, had its origin in long-lost Greek folk drama that aimed at a kind of magic to bring back the spring. For just as a rooster believes he brings up the dawn by crowing, so men have believed that their rituals could help them bring back their necessary sun, ejecting their darkness and guilt at the end of the year and renewing their life and light with the return of spring. I'm fascinated by his ongoing sort of crises with verse drama in particular and this the whole issue of getting away from the influence of Shakespeare, this, uh, this idea he had that poetry is not adornment, but closer to truth um, than, than prose can be. He, I know his, his feelings about it fluctuated, but could you tell us a bit more about this, particularly the getting away from Shakespeare thing? Was he surrounded by Shakespearean imitators at this point? Yeah, um, so, so, well, first of all, congratulations, you've done your homework. Um, yeah, and <laughs> You've described it really nicely, so I can just segue into what I'm going to say. Um, I'm sort of paraphrasing Jason Harding here. He has a great essay called T.S. Eliot's Shakespeare in Essays and Criticism um, that describes Eliot's own relationship and how his ideas about Shakespeare changed uh, throughout his life. So um, Eliot loved Elizabethan and Jacobean drama. He loved the blood and the thunder uh, and, and the grittiness of it. Mm. Uh, and because he thought that the essence of drama was rhythm, he thought that we needed, we, we've gotten away from rhythm. When people go to hear an Oscar Wilde play or an Ibsen play, they're, they're not, you know, they're not listening for a rhythm. It's not written in that kind of a pattern. But the problem with iambic pentameter is that it, it was used for so long and used so well by Shakespeare that to to write something in the iambic pentameter is to do Shakespeare, right? It just sounds old timey. Yeah. So he wanted to create a kind of a verse drama that would speak to contemporary concerns. So he hadn't quite figured it out by Murder in the Cathedral, which is a verse play. But by his next play, which was Family Reunion, he had figured out a kind of a line that had four big beats in it. And it's not really obvious, like, especially by the time you get to cocktail party, the mm. average viewer of the cocktail party, once they walk away, would not necessarily know that they had heard a verse drama. He wanted it to be kind of subterranean. Uh, and he thought that if there was going to be a resurgence of verse drama, you had to, you had to sort of sneak the medicine in underneath <laughs> a big pile of sugar. Um, because no one's going to go to something to build as a verse drama. It just all, it sounds boring, right? Mm -hmm. So he thought he had to sort of sneak that verse element in. So his relationship to Shakespeare then is not only that iambic pentameter, if he were to use it, would sound old timey. It's that Shakespeare was such a giant that trying to imitate him, you would always fail. 
he also thought that Shakespeare's iambic pentameter was rather rigid in the early plays. And so Eliot came to admire much later in his own life Shakespeare's own late plays, especially The Tempest, where he thought that the, the rhythm there was much more nuanced and subtle and capable of holding uh, emotion in more complex ways. Eliot based his versification for Murder in the Cathedral partly on the 15th century morality play Everyman. The older play examines Christian salvation. Its main character, Everyman, surrounded by allegorical figures, has to make an account of his life in order to reach heaven. Its verse is highly changeable, and Eliot was drawn to it because of how markedly different it sounds to plays written in the age of Shakespeare, saying that anything unusual in the sound of it would be, on the whole, advantageous. An avoidance of too much iambic, some use of alliteration, and occasional unexpected rhyme help distinguish the versification to that of the 19th century. In every man, the rhythm and length of the line and the frequency and pattern of the rhyme scheme change often. Some lines could almost pass for sham Shakespeare, such as every man's cry to death. O oh, wretched caitiff, whither shall I flee that I may scape this endless sorrow? Then there is death's promise to almighty God, which sounds both in content and rhyme scheme a little like the fairy song of Puck. Lord, I will in the world go run over all, and cruelly outsearch both great and small. Every man will I beset that liveth beastly out of God's laws, and dreadeth not folly. He that loveth riches I will strike with my dart, his sight to blind, and from heaven to depart. Except that arms be his good friend, in hell for to dwell, world without end. Then there are short, rhyming bits of conversation, like this stoic refusal from the character called Strength. In faith I care not, thou art but a fool to complain. You spend your speech and waste your brain, go thrust thee into the ground. And there are harsh, ugly rhymes, beastly and folly, in the example above. This is something Eliot used in Murder in the Cathedral. It makes a mockery of rhyme and resists any anticipation of Shakespearean rhyming couplets. You see, my lord, says the first tempter to Thomas, I do not wait upon ceremony. Here I have come, forgetting all acrimony hoping that your present gravity will find excuse for my humble levity, remembering all the good time past. Each of those rhymes grates on being a near miss, ceremony, acrimony, gravity, levity, and gives the tempter's flattering words that particularly sugary unpleasantness. He said of uh, the verse in Murder in the Cathedral that it only has negative merit, uh, and that, he, that the only merit was that he had avoided what he had to avoid, like the influence of Shakespeare. That doesn't seem to be uh, true. <laughs> what, what to you is, is sort of um, distinctive and memorable, to use very general terms, about the verse in Murder in the Cathedral? Well, I think w when I read that, his explanation of what is negative in the play, I simply read it to mean that he thinks that he's avoided the trap of iambic pentameter, which he mm. does successfully. He has a kind of a flexible verse line. There's some verses that just have three beats and others that are a little longer. He occasionally uses rhyme, both internal and at the end, but it's not in a regular pattern. So he's not using couplets like Shakespeare to round off a scene. Mm. So that that's what I think he means, that he's avoiding the trap of Shakespeare. And I find the rhythm to be very flexible. And another thing that I, I don't think in the performances that I've seen, I've never seen anyone, anyone use the rhythm that he points out pretty explicitly near the end of the play. Uh, he says in the stage directions that the dies irae is supposed to be sung. 
And the Dies Irae is an ancient Catholic hymn that has a very particular rhythm. Dies Irae, Dies Ila, Solve Hetzeclum in Favila, Teste Davi Cum Sibila, Bada, 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 Bada. And Eliot uses that trochaic beat in that trochaic beat is to be heard against the trochaic beat of the Dies Irae that's being sung off stage. Ah. So I've never seen a production that tried to actually coordinate the rhythms of both the singing of the Dies Irae and the words that Eliot is writing in that rhythm. Uh, and I think that would be, what's, that's one of the most interesting things I would like to hear. That's a, so he basically he started out just from the verse unit to be as different from Shakespeare as possible. He actually flip, flipped the iamp. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Interesting. Down the hand and dry the eyelid, still the horror, but more horror than any tearing in the belly. Still the horror, but more horror than when twisting in the fingers, than when splitting in the skull. More than footfall in the passage, more than shadow in the doorway. In the first half of the play, Beckett is approached by four tempters, who each try to lead him astray using a different tack. The first tempter tries to appeal to Beckett's pleasure-loving side, and possesses intimate knowledge of his past, referring to him as Old Tom, Gay Tom, Beckett of London, and promising to remember the Archbishop at kissing time below the stairs. The historical Beckett was said to have lived lavishly in his youth, as one of the king's courtiers, he loved wine, women, and extravagant clothes. But upon his election to the archbishopric, he transformed into the pious, modest, yet turbulent priest. That the tempters know of Becket's past implies they are either omnipotent demons, or simply aspects of Becket himself. Either way, the tempting is all verbal, an intellectual challenge to offset the physical reckoning Becket will face in the second half. The next tempter introduces himself saying, We met at Clarendon and appeals to Beckett's desire for political power, encouraging him to resume his former chancellorship. Intelligent self-interest is this tempter's motto. Shall he who held the solid substance wander waking with deceitful shadows? Power is present, holiness hereafter. King commands, he says, while chancellor richly rules. But it was always going to be a long shot for the second tempter, trying to get an archbishop to forget the afterlife. When he counsels Thomas to thrive on earth, and perhaps in heaven we know what the outcome will be. The third tempter affects the persona of a rough, straightforward Englishman that claims to find more in common with Thomas than the king. He insinuates a portrait of a happy coalition of intelligent interests, based on the fact that both the church and the people have a good cause against the throne. Here we see a little of Becket's superiority, as he reminds the tempter he once ruled over men like him as chancellor. Shall I, who ruled like an eagle over doves, now take the shape of a wolf among wolves? This echoes a line from Eliot's poem on the topic of his religious conversion, Ash Wednesday. Why should the aged eagle stretch his wings? Now we come to the fourth tempter, who surprises Thomas. Who are you, he asks. I expected three visitors, not four. This may be because in the wilderness Christ was visited by three tempters, so four seems like overkill for an archbishop. And in the play, originally there were just the biblical three. Not only that, but they were named historical figures. Later, Eliot made them abstract tempters, and added a fourth. This fourth tempter writes off the arguments of his predecessors, saying, Hooks have been baited with morsels of the past. Instead, he will tempt Beckett with the future. Neville Coghill notes that each tempter in turn annihilates the arguments of the tempter before. 
A nun so utterly as the fourth, who presents Thomas with the most tantalising vision of all, the everlasting glory of sainthood. When king is forgotten, says the fourth tempter, saint and martyr rule from the tomb. Thomas confesses pride, admitting he has thought of these things. After which the tempter tortures him with the contrary notion, complete historical obscurity. And later is worse, when men will not hate you, enough to defame or to execrate you, but pondering on the qualities that you lacked, will only try to find the historical fact. When men shall declare that there was no mystery about this man who played a certain part in history. The glory of martyrdom rapidly decays into a handful of dust, as the tempter holds before Thomas the vision of a pitiless void, the ultimate fear common to all men and common now to the would-be saint. That man passes from unreality to unreality, this man is obstinate, blind intent on self-destruction, passing from deception to deception, from grandeur to grandeur to final illusion, lost in the wonder of his own greatness, the enemy of society, enemy of himself. A crescendo follows this as tempters, chorus and priests harry Thomas in antiphony. But the archbishop weathers the storm and comes out knowing the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. The fourth tempter, like the chorus, speaks directly to the audience and from outside the 12th century. He references the church ransackings of the Reformation, imperiling the memory of Thomas's sacrifice. And he predicts the play itself, the pondering, mild interest of the audience, in this man who played a certain part in history. The metatheatrical nature of this fourth tempter was given an extra twist in the filmed version of Murder in the Cathedral. Unlike the previous tempters, he does not physically appear on screen, but is simply heard as a voice, which is the voice of the writer himself, T.S. Eliot. The play is proof of Beckett's triumph in death. Though its title may upon first hearing sound a bit like an Agatha Christie novel, it is of utmost importance that Beckett was murdered in the cathedral. The resulting outrage led to the two constitutions of Clarendon that Becket opposed being overturned by Henry II, and Becket himself was made a saint two years after his death. The church had been fortified by persecution. According to Peter Ackroyd, very quickly there grew up a cult around the site of the killing. Immediately after the death, certain members of his household, and perhaps also some of the people of Canterbury, rushed into the cathedral and cut off pieces of their clothes before dipping them in the archbishop's blood. They anointed their eyes with the precious fluid. At a later date, the monks of Canterbury developed a thriving trade in the miraculous properties of Becket water that contained a tincture of the blood. Regardless of how deliberate his involvement was, Henry was vilified for Becket's death. In an attempt to correct his public image, in 1174 he made a pilgrimage to Canterbury Cathedral, walking barefoot in a hair shirt, like the one Becket was said to be found wearing when he was buried. The king's pilgrimage was a public spectacle, but when he arrived at the cathedral, he was taken away to the crypt and whipped by his bishops. Then, after a day and night praying to round his penance out, he drank some of his former friend's blood in the so-called Becket water. Think of pilgrims, says the fourth tempter, standing in line before the glittering jewelled shrine. And King Henry was far from the only pilgrim to the shrine. For years after Becket's death, many flocked to his tomb, hoping to receive miracles. These journeys inspired Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which are told among pilgrims on the road to the cathedral. Uh, this is this is maybe the wrong question to ask about this play, but I, I've recently been doing episodes on um, Shakespeare's history plays, and and authenticity has come up a lot, and and historical record and that kind of thing. T. S. Eliot wasn't trying to write a play about medieval politics, but does his is his is his representation of um, Beckett surprising or fairly conventional? Um, that that's a good question. I'm not sure I can answer that really clearly. 
because I myself am not a medieval scholar, so I haven't read the the historical accounts of Beckett himself. I, I do know that there's a, a, fair, a fairly recently published letter, or maybe it's still an unpublished letter, some graduate student writes to him and says, hey, I've been assigned the mur murder in the cathedral and um, uh, and I have to compare them to a bunch of medieval you know, documents. And mm. Elliot wrote back, you, you poor you poor son of a bitch. Like <laughs> how in the world are you going to write a paper about that? Because, you know, I just used the standard accounts of Beckett and, and that's how I wrote the play. So, yeah, I don't think Elliot was interested in either giving a perfectly historically accurate account. I think he wanted to dramatize the inner struggle of a man who is a very worldly man. Mm. Uh, and how does he do something that amounts to martyrdom? So yeah, I, I, you, you have to ask a medieval historian that question then mm. if you want a clear answer. On, on the subject of uh, martyrdom, it sounds a little bit like how you could des describe how Eliot described this sort of curve of an artist life. I think he's described it as a continual extinction of personality. That sounds a little bit like um, martyrdom. Was he looking for something similar in his artistic life or religious life as well? Yeah, I think both. Mm. I think there's a, a connection between Eliot's own personal struggles. Uh, Virginia Woolf, let's, let's go back to her, who was just so perceptive, once asked him, I think out of the blue, I think they were in a taxi cab or something. She said, what do you most fear? And Ellie said, uh, humiliation. That was the thing that he most feared. And if you think about humiliation as a fear, the spiritual virtue of humiliation is humility. And Eliot was very, very interested in that spiritual virtue because he felt that he didn't have it much. And so he felt that it was something that he had to very much work for. Um, so we get lines like, humility is endless in the four quartets. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's a connection to be made there then between Eliot's own spiritual path of trying to become more and more humble uh, and accepting humility as a spiritual burden and his aesthetic theories that begin quite early with the idea of the artist extinguishing their personality. Um, Eliot had this theory of impersonality that everyone talks about, but that Eliot never, he talked about it quite often, but he never really fully theorized it very well. Uh, now that the complete prose is out, uh, and there's a lot more of Eliot's published and unpublished work now in the public realm, uh, we have a clearer idea of what he meant by impersonality. And it turns out that if you just take the word itself, it, it might seem that what Eliot is saying is that artists need to be cold bastards, right? Uh, unemotional. But, th but that's not at all what he's saying. Um, if you look at Tradition and the Individual Talent, uh, which is his most famous critical essay, mm -hmm. and another essay that was written about the same time, I'm blanking on the name at the moment, Modern uh, modern Poetry or something like that. Uh, it was published in, in a, this tiny little journal, journal called Shema. He describes modern tendencies in poetry. That, that I think, is the time. Mm. He describes it a little better, and it's something like this. If, if you're a person, let's say your wife divorces you, you are filled with emotion, perhaps rage or great sadness. And if you're a painter, you cannot paint a painting while you are sobbing and snot is pouring out of your nose, right? You have to somehow get a hold of yourself and then recall that emotion and then with a kind of a cold detachment put on the page 
or on the canvas, what you're experiencing, so that the audience can experience that rage or that passion. But the artist is a conduit for that emotion. So it's not that Eliot thought that he, as a person, should have no emotions, or that artists should have no emotions, but there is a difference between the man who suffers and the mind which creates. That's the quote from uh, tradition and individual talent. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's a kind of finding a place of, of sort of calm, of peace, basically, to, to recall that emotion. Wow. Beckett, as we have seen, has long accepted his fate, but the chorus have not. Oh, late, 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 they cry at the start of the play. Late is the time, late too late, and rotten the year. Evil the wind, and bitter the sea, and grey the sky, grey, grey, grey. O Thomas, return, Archbishop, return, return to France. Though they only mean to save their Archbishop, in urging him away from his martyrdom they are refusing God's will, and therefore going against the divine order. In my episode on Richard II I mentioned the universal order, as described by Ptolemy and later Ranulf Higdon. We saw that it was idiomatic that man's inner being reflected and affected his wider universe. And so, in times of civil war, the world is disordered. There are environmental and climatic disasters and astrological unrest. At the beginning of this play, the chorus willfully resist one of the simplest natural order of things, the seasons, saying, Winter shall come, bringing death from the sea. Ruinous spring shall beat at our doors. Root and shoot shall eat our eyes and our ears. Disastrous summer, burn up the beds of our streams, and the poor shall wait for another decaying October. But what they take as ill omen may in fact be something of their own doing, their own rejection of God's will. Their defiance against the seasons is particularly out of place, for as we have seen, the chorus was depended on in Greek ritual theatre to bring back the spring. They are essential in maintaining the natural order. But here, maddened by emotional excitement, they have gone rogue. One of the priests chides them as foolish and babbling women, croaking like frogs in the treetops. It should be said also that this seasonal significance was part of not only Greek ritual drama, but the medieval pageant plays, which began in the church as celebrations of Christmas and Easter and enacted the life cycle of Christ. The chorus's depiction of chaos provides some of the play's most memorable imagery, particularly in their horrified speech that comes after the appearance of Beckett's assassins. I have heard fluting in the night time. Fluting and owls have seen at noon scaly wings slanting over, huge and ridiculous. I have tasted the savour of putrid flesh in the spoon. I have felt the heaving of earth at nightfall, restless, absurd. I have heard laughter in the noises of beasts that make strange noises. Jackal, jackass, jackdaw. The scurrying noise of mouse and jerboa. The laugh of the loon, the lunatic bird. I have seen grey necks twisting. Rat tails twining in the thick light of dawn. I have eaten smooth creatures still living, with the strong salt taste of living things under sea. I have tasted the living lobster, the crab, the oyster, the whelk and the prawn, and they live and spawn in my bowels, and my bowels dissolve in the light of dawn. I have smelt death in the rose, death in the hollyhock, sweet pea, hyacinth, primrose and cowslip, I have seen trunk and horn, tusk and hoof, in odd places. I have lain on the floor of the sea and breathed with the breathing of the sea anemone, swallowed with ingurgitation of the sponge. I have lain in the soil and criticised the worm. Eliot is creating here, in the words of Louis L. Martz, 
the vision of a universe without order, a vision given in the only way in which the type of common man can realise it by all the quickened senses. The order of time is abolished, the merry fluting of a summer's afternoon is heard at night mingled with the owl's hollow note of death. Bats with the huge scaly wings of Lucifer slant over the noon sky. The creative minds of God and man is gone. The scavengers and the least sensitive, least conscious forms of life take over. The threat of death exists even in the most delicate flowers. And with this disorder, humanity feels its involvement. As mentioned on our Richard II episode, the hinge point of this divine order, the horizon, is man, whose being comprises of both the bestial and the celestial, and whose salvation rests on being able to subdue the former with the latter. But it is not within Beckett that this battle between sensual and spiritual is taking place, but in the women of Canterbury, and by extension, us. The chorus finally comes to see the occasion of Beckett's death as a cleansing winter, crying as he is killed, clean the air, clean the sky, wash the wind, take stone from stone and wash them. Beckett has been unbending in his pronouncement, that end will be simple, sudden, God-given. So it is, and after he is killed, the knights turn to the audience and offer an explanation in startlingly brisk and straightforward prose, intended, as Eliot said, to have a special effect, to shock the audience out of their complacency. As the third knight says, In what we have done, and whatever you may think of it, we have been perfectly disinterested. We are not getting anything out of this. We have much more to lose than to gain. We are four plain Englishmen who put our country first. Another takes a different tack, still only moments after he's murdered the Archbishop on stage. I had drunk a good deal, and I am not a drinking man ordinarily. The second knight says we are essentially accessories. We have served your interests. We merit your applause, and if there is any guilt whatever in the matter, you must share it with us. The knights call one another by their historical names, which were Reginald Fitzurse, William de Tracy, Hugh de Morville, and Richard Brito, or Brito, probably not Burrito. But even as they do, as D.E. Jones says, they step out of their 12th century setting. The knights seek by every means from blandishment to exhortation, cunningly using the techniques of modern political oratory, to make us admit the reasonableness of their action, and to acknowledge that we are involved in it, since we have benefited from it. The scene is shocking, and as Eliot said, was a kind of trick. As Neville Coghill says, their plausibility almost topples over into absurdity, but the apology was on no count to be treated as a joke. During the London run at the Mercury Theatre, Eliot felt the knights had tried to extract too much comedy from their roles. Um, can I ask you a bit about this, the first performance, which um, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by, because I know T.S. Eliot was involved in the production of it, and there's, there's accounts of him being very, very reserved... And I think I read one of his contributions in a whole rehearsal was stepping forward and sort of saying quietly, quietly, that's not a colon, that's a semicolon or, some, or something like that. Um, he seems like a, a, a strange sort of figure to imagine in that context. Um, so could, could I ask you more a bit about that, that rehearsal process and production? Yeah. That's, that's a great anecdote. Um, I, I've forgotten the, the woman who reported it, but I, I, I've written something about it thinking like, how, how does an actor signal difference between a comma and a comma. like well, how how does that even contribute at all um yeah. but he because he was himself not an actor and not a director he was very much a newbie and very dependent upon martin brown's leadership so yeah, so he took a back seat and and whenever martin brown would say this scene isn't working or these lines aren't working elliot went home and rewrote it he was not arrogant at all he was very 
open to the the suggestions of the colleagues that he had surrounded himself with because he knew that he that he needed their help. Elliot was quite stage struck after writing The Rock and seemed to have on the whole a happy collaboration with E. Martin Brown, even when Brown had to advise Elliot to make certain cuts, saying that they are very nice lines here, but they're nothing to do with what's going on on stage. Two of these lines Elliot cut would go on to have a famous afterlife elsewhere in his work. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future. You mentioned it's it's kind of the fact it was a surprise hit. Did Elliot have comparable success with his later plays like The Elder Statesman and so forth? Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think Cocktail Party won a Tony Award. Mm. And I, I'm going to be sort of reveal my prejudice here. Uh, I, I love The Murder in the Cathedral. And I think it's not only his first real play, it's his only good play. I dare anyone to read The Family Reunion and come away from that saying, oh, yeah, that is good drama. Like, it is just <laughs> tedious. Oh, it's tedious. I think his plays are best read, uh, aside from Murder in the Cathedral, his plays are best read because they introduce people to his perennial themes of salvation and redemption and time and regret and remorse and our responsibility to the other uh, in ways that are much more accessible than some of his early poems like The Wasteland. So I think they give us an accessible entryway. But, you know, I think the best argument for why his late plays aren't successful is just just to look at any major English-speaking city and see where his plays being produced. And the answer is almost nowhere. Yeah. And so after its sort of success and transfer to London, how, how did it leave Eliot as a, not just as a playwright, but as a just a poet as well? Was he, his life transformed by it? Or was it sort of another notch? It certainly showed him the viability of being a playwright, that it was something that he could do and that he could do well. Mm. So it's very much, it is very much a pivot point in his life. In the, so in the 1930s, he wrote Murder in the Cathedral and then his other play, The Family Reunion. And then World War II intervened. Um, and if World War II hadn't gotten in the way, it's possible that he would have written more plays, but it was hard to produce plays. Uh, by the way, since we're talking about Murder in the Cathedral, as you probably know, Murder in the Cathedral was very popular during World War II. Uh, it was performed in uh, bunkers and in the basement of Lloyd's Bank uh, and in an air raid shelter. So, um, you know, the, the British people who were under attack, uh, feeling this connection to one of their own martyrs in this in this great spiritual battle mm. against totalitarianism um, and Eliot wrote the play explicitly as a critique of of what happens when totalitarian governments try to control religious uh, feeling um, so he saw it as a critique of totalitarianism um, so uh, to go back to, to this narrative, if World War II hadn't intervened, he would have probably written even more plays and probably would not have written, uh, might not have written the four quartets. Uh, he wrote the first quartet in the 30s, but the final three of the four quartets he wrote during World War II. Um, it's easier to write lyric poetry in wartime conditions than it is to get a play staged. Mm. Um, so uh, a lot of people who think of four quartets written in the early 40s as sort of the end of Eliot's career, conveniently forget that he spent the rest of his life, another 30 years, trying to write plays. Um, so the image of Eliot as the high priest of high modernism, this writer, writer of coterie difficult poetry, that's really the, the picture of Eliot in the very early years of his career. And it ignores mm -hmm. the fact that he wanted very much to be 
quote, something of a popular entertainer. He, that, that's what he most wanted to be. And even though his early poetry was really great, he could have gone on writing that. Um, I think he's to be commended, even if those late plays aren't so great. It's the fact that he wanted to reach a broader audience. He wanted to bring that message even to uh, the middle classes whom earlier in his career he had rather despised. Oh, that's, I'd, I'd never heard of the, the connection between totalitarianism and, and that being a kind of driving force behind it. Was he... Um, it would be pretty early for him to be thinking explicitly about Germany. Was there, were there other governments he was th- he was thinking of or or, yeah. or criti- criticizing? Uh, he was critical of fascism almost from the start. Um, mm. The earliest thing we have him on record saying about fascism is I think it's in maybe January of 1933. So literally two months after Mussolini's march on Rome, when mm. nobody in Britain had the vaguest idea what fascism was, uh, and he wrote a letter to the editor, uh, someone who had published something about what fascism was, and Elliot wrote back saying, "Oh, if this is a new political idea, let's hear more of it." Uh, but by 1928, he was deeply critical of fascism. He saw its thuggery. He saw that it was wasn't really new as a political idea, that it was just authoritarianism in another kind of a guise, and he was a constant enemy of it. Mm. Uh, So he was quite alarmed by the rise of Hitler in uh, 1933, and um, he sometimes, because he had reactionary conservative politics, he's sometimes accused of being a fascist. Uh, But again, if you read through the prose, his his condemnation of fascism and communism uh, are in equal measure. He is not mm. impressed by either of those extreme answers to the weaknesses of liberal democracy. And it's on the weaknesses of liberal democracy that we will have to leave it for today. Um, a huge thank you to Jamie Steyer for joining me to talk about murder in the cathedral. Don't forget to check back tomorrow when I will um, post an extended interview with Jamie. And in the meantime, check out the International T.S. Eliot Society by clicking on the links in the episode information below. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, you can email eareadthis at gmail.com, follow any of our social medias. And uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash eareadthis. We'll be back very soon. And in the meantime, happy reading. (laughs) 